Well, welcome once again to Graceway Baptist Church to our Sunday school hour. And we are working our way through the book of Galatians, one of the most important books in the New Testament. It's the, uh, one of the books that changed Martin Luther's life from the Roman Catholic system of salvation by works to justification by grace through faith alone, as he would say. And uh, it's something that we need to be well acquainted with too. It's a very important concept because when you have religion, religion is man's attempt to get to God. And it's always in human effort, by human performance, purifying and justifying yourself, which uh, is impossible because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is too holy to allow sin into his presence. And so uh, we can never become what we are not. We're always tainted by sin. And no matter what we do, it always has the tinge of sin in it. As you've heard me say a hundred times before, if sin were some shade of, uh, if sin were blue, it means that even the very best things we do would be some shade of blue. We need redemption. We need to be cleansed. And our cleansing comes through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But obviously, it can't just be the blood of anything. Even in the Old Testament, they couldn't just kill a cat and say, there, that'll cover my sins. No, it had to be a lamb or a goat or an ox or whatever was prescribed for the particular sin. And then that animal had to die. Well, what did the animal ever do? Nothing. Animals don't sin. Humans sin. And so the innocent was dying on behalf of the guilty. And God took that because when you offered that sacrifice, if you did it properly, you were doing it by faith in what God had said and what he required. And it also was a picture of Jesus Christ who was going to be sent in the future to be the perfect and the ultimate. And this is really important the final sacrifice for all of our sins. So he died, as the book of Hebrews says, one time for all of our sins. One time for all of our sins. As it says in the first part of the book of Colossians, that our sins are paid for past, present, and future. A long time ago, Dr. Ironside was, I believe, the president of Moody Bible Institute, and he was on a train and a lady on the train was talking to him and they were talking about the Bible. And she said, well, I understand how my uh, past sins could be paid for, but how could my future sins be paid for on the cross? And his answer was, dear lady, when Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were future sins. Well, that's a good answer because Jesus paid for all of the sins of all who would believe in him. And that was all taken care of on the cross, so much so that that qualified us to be a part of the family of God. It means that all of the legal requirements that were written against us, Paul said, were actually nailed to the cross, done away with, paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. And so uh, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven because of what Christ has done. And it's always because of what Christ has done. And so Paul wanted the Galatians and uh, the Holy Spirit wanted us to get this as well. That's why this book is included in the canon of Scripture, the eternal Word of God, 
because this is where we have to stand. This is really what it is all about. This really is the main point of the Word of God. Now, in this that we're going to look at today, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, we're going to read about some symbols. Paul is going to use this as an illustration. These are actual events that actually happen, interestingly enough, taken out of the law of God. The law of God is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? And so this story comes out of the law, and Paul uses it as an illustration to refute what the Judaizers want and what they try to say. And we'll talk about that as we go on. So Galatians chapter 4, 21 uh, through 31. Okay? Now, we're going to set this up because I'm going to remind you that Jesus is famous for saying things like this to the, to the Pharisees of all people. Have you not read? Okay? Now, it wasn't that they hadn't read it. In fact, they were supposed to be scholars in the Old Testament, particularly in the first five books of the Bible. That was foundational for all of them. And yet they would ask these questions and things would come up and he would go, seriously, you don't know this? And it made them look like fools in front of all the people. They professed to be so wise and so knowledgeable and so perfect and so religious with all of their robes and all of their degrees and everything like that. The common people who... Uh, uh, they weren't illiterate, but they weren't well-educated in uh, Israel in those times. And they were always made to feel very, very, very inferior by the Pharisees. So when Jesus, who seemed to them to be just a common Galilean carpenter guy, and he could shut the mouths of the Pharisees, sometimes just by asking them, you mean you don't know this? You mean, have you not read this? Is what was coming across here. And this is kind of what Paul is doing, the same thing in this passage in Galatians. So um, think about in Matthew 19, verse 4, the Pharisees say, is it, um, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And if it's not, then why did Moses command that we give a certificate of divorce to our wives. And uh, Jesus just says to them, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course. You mean you don't know this? Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning created them male and female and said, for this reason, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and wife and cleave to his, uh, uh, leave his father and mother, excuse me, and cleave to his wife. And he said, and uh, therefore they shall be uh, one flesh, no longer two, but one. And what God has joined together, let not man put asunder or divorce or separate on that. Well, think about how that made them feel and how that made them look. Okay, Mr. Expert, you haven't gotten this. Have you not read that? You're supposed to know all of these things. Now, this is what is happening here. The Judaizers are coming in saying, we have the full knowledge. Paul didn't tell you what it says in the book of the law about being circumcised. So Paul is going to brilliantly turn the tables on them, and he's going to use an illustration right out of the very law that they are proposing has been overlooked. 
that they are saying you need to keep this. This is something you are deficient in. Now, understand this, that the legalists like the Judaizers, they always emphasize certain aspects of the law over others. They're not real fair with all of it. And so kind of like uh, somebody may turn to the book of the, uh, one of the books of the law and say, look, it says right here, you're not supposed to get a tattoo while they're eating a ham sandwich. Okay, now if you've read all of that, neither one of those would be acceptable. We always have this tendency to, I mean, if I don't want to get a tattoo and I don't like tattoos and I'm not into that, then I don't, but I condemn other people who do get one. And then at the same time, I violate the laws that are inconvenient for me and uh, keep the ones that are kind of convenient. That's the way self-righteousness really is. In fact, when I think about the Pharisees that Jesus had so much trouble with, they always looked for loopholes in the laws that they wanted to violate. They always wanted a way to kind of make it acceptable and to try to make it work. They didn't really, they weren't fair, I guess you would say, about applying all of it and they weren't consistent with it. So Paul uses the book of Genesis, which is a book of the law, uh, to illustrate the grace of God by asking the Judaizers if they have even read the law. Tell me, he says, you who desire to be under the law, obviously the Judaizers, do you not hear the law? In other words, have you not really read it? Do you not understand it? And well, that would have been offensive to them. Look at verse 22. For it is written, what is he making reference to? Old Testament scripture, specifically out of the law of Moses. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. He uh, had one by a bondwoman, a slave, remember Hagar? And the other by a free woman. That was his wife. And that was the way it was supposed to be. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, by the ability of the flesh, by natural means, and of the free woman through a promise. It was the most amazing thing of all. You remember those people came to Abraham's tent, and Abraham was so hospitable to them, stay here, and uh, let me uh, uh, get your feet washed, and we'll have a barbecue and everything will be great. And they told him a year from now, you'll have a baby. And that's the time when Sarah heard that and she laughed. And these uh, men, these angels, one of them I believe was Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance, uh, Christophany is what that's called, that uh, he said, why did she laugh? And then Sarah tries to deny it and uh, all of that. And yet it happened. Even though they were very old and even though Sarah was past the childbearing years, then they did have a baby and that baby, his name is Isaac. And that's the one where the blessing would be. That is the one that was the father of the Jewish nation and all of the Jews carry Abraham's DNA, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Ishmael, you get the uh, Arab races and others like that. They're related, but that's not the way the promise was supposed to be because Abraham and Sarah when they said, well, we're supposed to have a baby and I'm supposed to be the father of many nations and you're supposed to be a princess. 
Uh, how are we going to do this? We got to help God out. He's going to be embarrassed if we don't have any. And Sarah said, well, I've got this young Egyptian slave here. And if you could have a child through her, then that would solve the problem. Now, if you remember the story, it didn't solve the problem because number one, it wasn't of God. It wasn't a supernatural thing in the promise of God. It wasn't through the right bloodline. And also it caused tremendous jealousy between Sarah and uh, Hagar, even though it was Sarah's idea. Yet Sarah is jealous of Hagar after it's all said and done. You know, we're all kind of childish, aren't we? And uh, that was certainly the case there. You're the one who suggested this and now you don't like her because she did something you couldn't do. Okay. So one is of the flesh and one is of the promise. Which things, he says in verse 24, are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is represented by Hagar, the slave woman. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, the temple and the Jewish religion. We'll talk about that in a little bit, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Okay. So number one, notice this. The legalist would pick and choose the scriptures that they wanted to enforce. So Paul says, well, tell me you who desire to be under the law, have you, do you not hear the law? Are you not paying attention to it? Because this story that he uses should have been evident to these people who were going to be experts in the law and the uh, sheriffs, I guess we would say, that were going to enforce the law and make everybody conform to it. But, you know, there were some parts that were just, uh, that's not really what we're all about. And so notice they would hammer the laws that they liked and that they could do. If they could do it and if they liked it, if it fit with them and their culture and who they were, they were all for it. Man, they were really gung-ho about it. But think of it. Circumcision is the big deal for them. Not, not Passover or any of those other things, but circumcision. Something that is surgical, something that is painful, something that would uh, you would kind of shrink back from. Think of it. And so, uh, well, you say, well, they were circumcised. Yeah, but remember, they were circumcised as babies on the eighth day. They didn't choose to be circumcised. It wasn't a great act of faith where they said, here, I present myself to be circumcised. You can't do that when you're eight days old. They didn't even remember it. Certainly it was a painful thing for them, but they don't even remember it now as adults. And yet they're going to impose that on you, something that is going to be traumatic, something that is going to be painful and something that is going to be very, very difficult to go through. And so, uh, yeah, easy for you to do. And we just tend to do that as humans. And uh, we, we think that, um, okay, here I am. It's easy for me to look at somebody and say, if you're addicted to tobacco, man, that's a horrible thing. And, and it is. I'll stand by that. But uh, if I hold myself, you need to be more like me. Now, 
I've never been addicted to tobacco. So it's kind of easy for me to say and to demand that you give it up immediately, give it up right now and uh, have the addiction broken because after all, Jesus can do that. Well, he can, but what if he doesn't? And uh, I can look in my life and I can say, you know, you should be more like me when the truth is we're all supposed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and we all have our sins and we all have our flaws. Now, it's always been kind of funny to me to hear a preacher talk about alcoholics, drug addicts, people that are addicted to tobacco and things like that, and then there he is weighing 350 pounds. Something doesn't seem quite right sometimes about that. He doesn't preach against gluttony, but he will preach against the things that don't bother him. Now, we all do that, and we all judge other people in that way, and we really shouldn't. We should let the Word of God be the standard, the Word of God properly understood, and yet we don't. Now, notice that they pushed this thing of circumcision, but they didn't really choose to be circumcised. So how can there be any nobility or virtue in that? They didn't even know what was happening. They were infants, for crying out loud. And they had no memory of it. And, uh, you know, neither would be the case for these poor Galatian men that they're going to impose this on. And legalism often demands that you conform to the things that they easily do, okay, while ignoring the hard things. Now, listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees who were like the Judaizers. He says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You emphasize some and you ignore others, in other words, right? And here's what the weightier matters are. Justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In fact, Jesus was saying to them, if you're going to do it, do it all, not just the parts that are easy. It's not that hard to tithe out of your spice cabinet and then feel good about yourself. But justice and mercy and all of that that goes on, well, that's a little harder to do. It's hard to forgive people. It's hard to overlook other people's sins against you. And so secondly, we find here the illustration Paul uses is actually from the law. So he's not coming up with something abstract, something that would not fit. This is very pertinent because it is part of the law of Moses out of the books of the law. And it also has to do with Abraham, of father Abraham. Every Jew, all of these Judaizers would be, be very proud of the fact that they were descendants. They were of the seed. They had the DNA of Abraham himself in them. That's what made them special. And yet they would ignore the very things about Abraham himself that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Not because he was circumcised, not because he did anything else, because he believed God. They would ignore this story. This story is a picture, an illustration of two ways to try to live. You can either live by your own power, your own strength, your own ability according to the flesh, or you can live according to the promises of God. The promises of God sometimes seem 
unworkable, unreasonable. That'll never happen. So I'll just do something over here that I can handle in my own strength. And that's what Abraham and Sarah did. Well, I know God said we're going to have a child, but there's no way that Sarah can bear a, ch a, a child. She's far past childbearing years. So let's help God out. You know, God doesn't need to be embarrassed. So we'll have a child through this Egyptian slave. And so Paul uses that as, a, as an illustration. You can either work to try to keep the law and do it inadequately and never be free. It's always you're going to be under bondage and the slavery of the law and never able to fulfill it. See, here's the thing. You not only need to keep the law, but you've got to fulfill the law. You've got to keep 100% of the law 100% of the time. Who in the world can do that? And so there we are trying to have children by an Egyptian slave and then trying to say, this is the blessing and the promise of God. No, it's just what humans could do. And it's the inadequacy of trying to do things by ourselves in the flesh. And so you don't get the blessing of God. You don't get the promise of God. You don't get the covenant that's made with God because that's only going to come through the child that God provides through a lady who is unable physically to have children, and yet she does. And through that is the blessing of Abraham to all of the Jews who live on the earth and the nation of Israel even today. And so that's the illustration that he is going to say. We know that story. We know the story. One is what God did completely, and the other one, I'm not going to say that Ishmael's birth didn't have anything to do with God. It did, just like the law has something to do with God. But you remember the law had a purpose, and that purpose was not to justify you or make you righteous. Only God could do that, just like only God could make Sarah bear a child. So notice the bullet points under this. They emphasized what they wanted, and they made themselves look righteous, and they manipulated and controlled other people. And people became more afraid of the Pharisees and what they thought than they were of God. And that's almost always the case. We find people that when they follow a legalist, they're more concerned about that, what that legalistic preacher, that legalistic teacher, that legalistic Christian thinks than they are about God. The first thing that comes to their mind whenever they think about sin, oh, I could never do that. What would brother so-and-so think? Or what would sister so-and-so think? And uh, it, it really doesn't come to what would God think about all of this. And uh, that means we're elevating people. Look at Matthew 23, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes, I can talk, and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Okay, they act like they, are, they have inherited the position of Moses and the law, judges over the law. Okay, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move uh, them with one of their fingers. In other words, they won't lift a finger 
to help any of these people or to have mercy on them. They just impose, impose, impose and judge and criticize and cast them out and all of that mean-spirited, harsh and legalistic and judgmental, all of that. And he says in verse five, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries, that was that box they would put on their forehead with a strap that had scripture in it. They make their phylacteries broad, make a big one. If a little one's really good, a big one really shows how holy you are. And they enlarge the borders of their garments, their talith, their prayer shawls that they would wear. They had 613, I believe, fringes on them. And as they would pray, they would take each fringe and hold it up. And that would be what they would pray about. Then the next one and the next one. What were those fringes? All of the regulations and rules that were in the law of Moses. And so they were saying, Jesus is saying, they take even their prayer shawl and they make the fringes big and, and long and noticeable on that because they were doing all of this to be seen, to be admired by men. They didn't really care to be justified by God. They didn't care to come before God and to say, I can't do this. They didn't care to come before God to say, I have failed and I cannot keep what you commanded in the law of Moses. Have mercy on me. And again, as we said almost every week, it was the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. One recites all of his good works and thanks God that he's not like this nasty ta tax collector. But the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he remember he beat on his chest saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said only one went home justified and it was not the Pharisee. Now, when it says that they would put burdens on people, it was one thing to say, you shall not steal. But then they came up with all kinds of technicalities and rules and regulations that made it mean more than just that statement. It was all kinds of things to make life more difficult and to make their unrighteousness more evident. Now, the way that the Pharisees or the reason the Pharisees did this is it brought them praise. You're so smart and you are so holy and you are so righteous and you see more things than I see. You must be a godly, godly person. And it was all to be seen by men. And he says that they love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogue. They like greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. And he said, but you don't be called rabbi for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? So number three, notice that Ishmael and Hagar represent the law. Futility, it doesn't have the blessing. It leads to death. It doesn't get you out of bondage. It can't pay your sin debt. It can't do anything like that at all. So understand that Ishmael, Hagar, Sinai represent human effort, self-righteousness, undue pride, 
and using the law unlawfully. They use it to proclaim how great they are instead of using it to expose their own sin and their need of a savior. Isn't that what we always do? And rather than trusting God to fulfill this promise, Abraham and Sarah decided to fulfill the promise of God in their own power. And this is a picture of what Judaism had become. Keeping the law was not a delight, it was a burden. And keeping the law was not for the purpose of pleasing God, it was to look good in front of other people and to say, look what I have done, instead of saying, look how sinful I am, and then offering the blood sacrifice to say, I cannot keep your law, O God. Please forgive me by the shedding of this innocent animal's blood, as you will one day send your Messiah to to shed his innocent blood on my behalf. So everything in the law was to point to Christ. Everything in the law was to point to human inadequacy. But it had degenerated this whole religion to law keeping and pride and unrighteousness, actually, that was uh, totally unacceptable to God. Now, number four, Isaac and the heavenly Jerusalem represent the new covenant of freedom and of grace. The heavenly Jerusalem. Now, we read about that in the book of Revelation. It's going to come down from heaven. It's not built by men. It's not anything we can see. It's not anything we can fully understand. But one day, God's going to bring it down from heaven when he makes a new heaven and a new earth. It's all going to be from him. It's all going to be by him. And it is going to be something that we receive as a free gift. And this is what Paul is saying. Uh, Did Abraham and Sarah do anything to make Isaac to be born? No, that was something that God did, and he did it in a supernatural way, and that's where the blessing was, and that's where the promise was, and that's where the covenant was going to be carried through. In other words, God was saying, I don't need your help, and you cannot produce what I want to produce anyway. And that really is how we are in our life and in our salvation has to be of God, has to be from God. We could never produce it. We could never even get close to it because it would all be sinful. And so Paul is saying everything we are comes from heaven, not through surgery, not through feasts, not through rituals. It comes from heaven where God is and it's perfect and it's totally acceptable to God. And he gives it as a free gift for those who would put their faith in him. In other words, it's a promise not made with human hands. And it's a reference to God's promised Messiah and the salvation that comes totally by grace, an undeserved gift. Man, that's really amazing to think about. So going all the way back to the Old Testament, we see this was God's plan all along. It wasn't just cooked up by the early church. It wasn't plan B that he said, well, let's try something different. Keeping the law didn't work. I heard a preacher here in Oklahoma, a Baptist preacher, a Southern Baptist preacher at one of our state meetings. And he said, it works like this. God was in heaven and he said, don't eat the fruit. And then he said, oh, they did it. Man, what am I going to do now? 
okay, well, I'll give them some prophets and preachers to tell them what they ought to do. And so they didn't. And an angel came and said, they've killed all of your prophets and they're not listening to all of them. And so God said, well, then I'll do something else. I'll write it down for them so that they can't change it. And they've got it all straightened out. And then the angel came back and said, they're not reading your word and they're not obeying your word. And finally, God got up and said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to go down there and take care of things myself. And it was amazing in that meeting with all those preachers and everything. There was people amen and hooting and hollering about all of that. And I thought, that is so wrong because Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He's not plan B. It's not that God the Father said, well, I've tried everything else. I guess I'll send my son. No, he was always the plan. And redemption was always by God. It was always by grace. It was always through faith. It was always a free gift. And going even back to Genesis to Eve, when the promise is given to her in Genesis chapter 3, that there was going to be someone coming from her that would crush the serpent's head. That's Jesus. And when you find the picture here of Abraham and Isaac, why did God allow that and allow the Hagar thing and the Ishmael thing and the trouble it caused? Because he wanted to see, wanted people to see the illustration of what happens when we do things in the flesh, like law keeping, as opposed to simply trusting in the promises of God. You get the blessing of Abraham and the blessing of Isaac. All of this is going all the way back to show this was the plan all along. So if anything is clear in Scripture, these truths certainly are. Number one, salvation is of the Lord, as we see in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, that lost people are spiritually dead, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that no one seeks after God in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and that any good that we do is unacceptable to God, Isaiah uh, 64, 6. And these truths make it clear that salvation cannot possibly be earned. It must be provided and it has to be given by God himself. And it's called grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, a free gift from the father. Well, I hope that makes you think and I hope it excites you to know how much God loves you and what he has given to you and how freely he gives it through the death of his own son. Because in this, he also gives you not only salvation and forgiveness for your sin, but he gives you the righteousness of Christ and puts it on your record book. And then he himself comes to live inside of you and make your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. Man, this is a great thing. But it's not just something that's cooked up by the early church or the Catholics or anything like that. It's all the way back in the Old Testament. Never, ever, ever unhitch from the Old Testament, but find out what it says and find out that this is what God has planned all along. And when he made his plan, he included you in it. Praise his name. So thank you for your time. Pray the Lord will bless you as you teach this and give you understanding and a better ability to communicate it than what he has given me. I pray that you'll be able to really get the point across to your class by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that it'll change lives and pray that it'll reinforce truth in people's lives. We'll see you next week, Lord willing. And thank you again for your time. 
and God bless you.